of freedom from the condemnation of sin and freedom from the bondage of sin. That's the main point. In Christ, Christians enjoy the double blessing of freedom from the condemnation of sin and freedom from the bondage of sin. You see it there. In verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's freedom from the condemnation of sin. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life is set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's freedom from the bondage of sin. Now notice this, in verses 3 and 4, Paul repeats the same truth. So what he stated in verses 1 and 2, now he will repeat in verses 3 and 4. Of course, he elaborates on it a bit, that it's the same truth. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. There it is. Freedom from the condemnation of sin, just like in verse 1. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's freedom from the bondage of sin, just like in verse 2. So this is the main point. In Christ, Christians enjoy the double blessing of freedom from the condemnation of sin and freedom from the bondage of sin. Paul states it in verses 1 and 2, then he repeats it in verses 3 and 4. Now, I want us to consider eight truths or applications from our passage, from this text. The first is this. Freedom from condemnation is the blessing of justification. Freedom from condemnation is the blessing of justification. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the blessing that Paul is speaking about here in verse 1, the blessing of no condemnation is the blessing of justification. Now what does justification mean? Well, you hear that word just in the word justification. And the Bible teaches us that God is just. That God is holy. He is righteous. And sinners, we have violated His justice. We violated His righteousness. Holiness. As a result, we deserve His justice. We deserve His judgment. We deserve His condemnation. But through Jesus' sinless life and atoning death on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the perfect standard of God's righteousness on our behalf. And now, in Christ, He declares us to be just and righteous and holy in His presence. This is what it means to be justified before God. Now in Romans chapter 5 in particular, Paul spends a bit of time developing this idea of justification. And so I just want to reference a couple of verses there to give us a sense of what Paul has in mind. So in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, we read these words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there Paul is telling us what justification is. Through faith in Jesus, we are justified. And what it means to be justified is that we do not possess the fear of condemnation from God, but rather we enjoy peace with God. That's what it means to be justified. 
according to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Or in Romans chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says this. For the judgment following one trespass, that is the trespass of Adam, the sin of Adam in the garden, brought condemnation. And that word there in chapter 5, verse 16, condemnation, is the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So the judgment following the trespass of Adam brought condemnation to all of us. But the free gift following many trespasses, that is the gift of Jesus and his redemptive work, brought justification. So justification is God's answer to the condemnation that our sin deserves. Justification in that sense means freedom from the condemnation of our sin. And hence, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have been justified in Christ Jesus by faith. Now, of course, it is impossible for us to overstate the value and the worth of this gospel blessing. Do you realize that what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 means that if we are in Christ, there is no condemnation for our past sins, for our present sins, and for our future sins. Can we even conceive of such a blessing? Some of you this morning, there's no condemnation for our past sins. Some of you this morning, at this time, may be living godly, faithful, Christian lives, but there's a particular sin or set of sins in your past for which you continue to feel terrible condemnation. And over those sins, God declares no condemnation. There are some of you here this morning that you might say, you know, when we were working through Romans chapter 7, and Paul was talking about the struggle and the ongoing battle that he has with sin, and he was saying, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. But he was speaking my language. Like right now, I am experiencing that type of battle, that type of struggle with sin. And listen, my friends, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is that if you are in Christ over that present struggle and battle with sin, God declares no condemnation. And that shouldn't make us more inclined to give ourselves to that sin, but rather all the more inclined to renounce it. Some of us in the future will gravely disappoint ourselves, our families, our friends, maybe our church body, and we will sin in ways that deeply grieve us and others. There may be fallout from those sins, there may be consequences, bitter consequences as a result of those sins, but do you know that if you are in Christ Jesus over those sins that you have yet to commit, God has already declared no condemnation. Some of you this morning might feel condemnation because another is having a difficult time forgiving you for sins that you have committed in the past. And yet God's word is a great word. No condemnation. 
And if you are that person who is struggling to forgive the sins of another and the ways that you have been grieved and the ways that you have been hurt and you are wrestling and you are battling through that and you are struggling through that, even in that struggle, God declares over you no condemnation. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, does this mean that we will never feel conviction over our sin? Absolutely not. Conviction is different than condemnation, right? Condemnation pushes us away from God, but conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit in which He calls us to repentance so that our relationship with God and with others might be restored. Does this mean that we will never experience God's discipline or the bitter consequences of our sin? No. The Bible tells us that God, like a father, He disciplines those whom He loves. And He disciplines us in order to correct us, to instruct us, to draw us to Himself. So listen, if you're in Christ, you may know God's loving, corrective, disciplined as a father, but you will never know God's condemnation and wrath as a judge. You will never know, if you are in Christ, God's wrath and condemnation as a judge. You will only know Him to relate to you as a father. Often we're inclined to think that God is pleased with us, or maybe it's a characteristic of godliness to walk around all the time with a sense of guilt, and a sense of condemnation, and a sense that God is angry with us and only halfway tolerates us. Paul is telling us here that that is not godliness. In fact, that is unbelief. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second point I want us to see from our text is that God accomplished justification through the work of His Son. So first we see that freedom from condemnation is the blessing of justification. Secondly, God accomplished justification through the work of His Son. Now look there in verse 1 and we see that Paul declares the reality of justification. This is what we just considered. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then notice in chapter 8, verse 3, Paul tells us how God accomplished this work of justification. He says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Here it is, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, notice the number of things here that Paul is teaching us about the way in which God has accomplished our justification through the work of His Son. You see there, he says, by, verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 3, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now this is a reference here to the incarnation of the Son of God. What do we mean by incarnation? Well, the incarnation is the truth that God the Son took on flesh. He was born a child, and He dwelt among us as a man. And notice the care with which Paul expresses this truth. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now just a couple of things here. Notice, he does not say he sent his own son in sinful flesh. That might imply that the incarnate son was himself sinful. Nor does Paul say that he sent his own son in the likeness of flesh. 
That might imply that the incarnate Son was not fully human, that he only appeared to be human. Rather, Paul says that he sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, which more clearly preserves the full humanity of Jesus as well as his sinless perfection. So, the work of the Son in justifying us takes place in part through his incarnation. And then notice the next thing Paul says. That he sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh here is for sin. Or it could be translated concerning sin. And this is a reference here to the atonement, the atoning death of Jesus Christ. In fact, some translations opt here for this translation. That he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Or one translation says, to be a sin offering. Both of which represent what Paul is trying to communicate here. And one of the reasons why we know this is exactly what Paul is intending to communicate is because we have examples of this in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And in Jesus' day, as well as Paul's day, most people spoke Greek. So there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's the Septuagint. And if we go to the Septuagint and we look at, in particular, the books of Leviticus and Numbers, we see this phrase in Leviticus and Numbers, we see it in Hebrew, sin offering. Sin offering. And the way it's rendered in Greek over and over again is the same words that Paul uses here. Periharmartios, for sin, concerning sin. So that's what Paul is speaking of here. When he says that the Son was sent for sin, he means he was sent to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then notice the next thing that he says regarding the work of the Son. He condemned sin in the flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now notice the connection here in chapter 8, verse 3, to what we just read in chapter 8, verse 1. In verse 1 we read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how does that happen, Paul? Because God sent his own son to be an atoning sacrifice for us so that he might be condemned. Sin might be condemned in the flesh. In other words, we enjoy no condemnation because all the condemnation for our sin was placed on God's incarnate Son on the cross. And if God's beloved Son did in fact suffer all the condemnation that we deserve for our sin, then there is no more condemnation to be executed. All of God's condemnation for our sin was exhausted in the Son on the cross. And God, who is just, will not require double payment for sin. It would be unjust for God to condemn us for the very sins for which the Son has already suffered the full condemnation. Therefore, through faith in the Son, who suffered our condemnation in full, there is no condemnation. 
So this is what we see here in our text in Romans 8, 1 through 4, regarding justification. There is no condemnation through the work of the Son in relationship to our sins. Now, we'll consider the work of sanctification. This is the third thing I want us to see from our text, the third thing. Freedom from the bondage of sin is the blessing of sanctification. Freedom from the bondage of sin is the blessing of sanctification. Now, remember what sanctification means. I know that's a big word, but we've been talking about it a lot in this series. Sanctification means to sanctify. What it means to sanctify is to, to make holy, to set apart. So as we're talking about sanctification here, we're referring to the process by which God makes us holy. He sets us apart. He causes us, by His grace, to become more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice what Paul says in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now the word law here is being used in the sense of a principle, a power, an authority. And if you've been here in our series... You, this phrase here that Paul uses, the law of sin and death, it might sound familiar to you. And that's because Paul's used this phrase before. In fact, he uses it at the end of chapter 7. So just scan your eyes up a little bit up the page, and you see there in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 7, Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive. Here it is, to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he, he, makes, he makes a reference to this again in verse 25 of chapter 7. So chapter 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but with my flesh I serve, here it is, the law of sin. So in chapter 7, Paul is acknowledging this ongoing battle, this ongoing struggle with the law of sin. It's seeking to take us captive. It's seeking to bring us under its submission, under its authority. But Paul says here in chapter 8 that at the end of the day, our status as Christians is not that of a slave to sin, but rather our status as Christians is free from sin. Free from death, slaves to righteousness. We have been set free from the law of sin and death. Now notice, as Paul goes on in verse 4 to elaborate on this truth, notice what this means. So you see the parallel statement in chapter 8, verse 4. He spoke in our freedom from the bondage of sin, verse 2. And now in verse 4, he's going to explain to us, unpack more what this means. So look there in verse 4, and he says... In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, I feel the need to point this out because you may come across this in various places or maybe in a study like you're using, but some interpret the righteous requirement of the law that it might be fulfilled in us, in verse 8, as referring to our justification, which we already talked about a few moments ago. So the idea here would be that through faith in Jesus, God credits to us the perfect record of Jesus' obedience so that the requirements of the law are fulfilled in Jesus. 
And then he declares that to us so that we are righteous, we are just in Christ, and we meet the requirements of the law before God. Now let me just say, that's absolutely true. The Bible teaches that. That's theologically true. That is the doctrine of justification. We are declared right and just before God because of Christ's perfect obedience to the law and his atoning death on the cross. However, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I don't think that's what Paul's point is here. And I think most commentators agree with this. Notice, let me show you why. Notice, Paul does not say, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled for us. Rather, he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Paul is saying, this is not something that is being done for us, but it's actually something being done in us. And then he goes on to explain that, with, explain this in the next phrase, when he says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he's saying, he uses the word walking, which indicates behavior, a way of living, a, a lifestyle. So what Paul is referring to here is not something that happens for us, Christ died for us. He lived the perfect record of, of righteousness for us. Rather, we speak of something that happens in us. And then that thing that happens in us is expressed through the way we live and we walk and we behave. Therefore, what Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 8 verse 4 is not our justification, but rather our sanctification. And how can Paul say this? I mean, this seems like quite a grand claim in chapter 8, verse 4. How can he say that the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in us? What Paul is doing here is he's appealing to the promise of the new covenant. So in the Old Testament, God promised his people that he would make with them a new covenant. And listen to the way that God describes this new covenant through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, the Lord says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That's what Paul's speaking about in Romans chapter 8 verse 4. It's the promise of the new covenant. We're given the spirit so that we might walk in obedience to God's commands and rules. Or listen to the way that Jeremiah says it in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. This is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So in Christ, get this now, in Christ, the reality of the new covenant promises are being lived out in us and through us. Not perfectly, but true. Not fully, but progressively as we become more and more like Christ. Before our conversion, this was impossible. But now by the grace of God through faith in Christ, it is happening. And it will be fully realized 
when we are glorified. Now, I, I just want to press into this just a little bit deeper, just one more level, okay? So, so what does this actually look like? What is the righteous requirement of the law? What does it look like for that to be lived out in and through us? And it's amazing because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, you can turn there if you want to, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Now listen to what Paul says here. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So this is what Paul means in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. The righteous requirement of the law that it might be fulfilled in us. It means that the new covenant promises of God are being fulfilled in us and expressed through us as we love others. As we love others as Christ would have us to love them. That is the reality of sanctification in Christian's life. And what Paul is saying here is that this is not only possible for the Christian, but for the Christian it is inevitable because we are in Christ. And isn't this half the battle in our fight with sin? Half the battle in our struggle with sin? To know that this is who we are now in Christ and to believe it? Do you remember in Romans chapter 6 when Paul is writing to the church in Rome here and he's telling them about their identity in Christ and that they're united with Christ and the victory that they have over sin now in Christ and there's this repeated phrase over and over again that Paul uses. Do you not know? Do you not know that this is who you are in Christ? Do you not know that this is true of you? Half the battle, my friends, is to stop believing that our fundamental identity, that our most defining experience is that we're an alcoholic, or that we're a rage monster, or that we have the mouth of a sailor, or that we're easily angered, or that we're a pervert, or an adulterer, or that we're a coward, or a people pleaser, to just relinquish ourselves and say, that's just who I am. Paul says, no, if you are in Christ, that is no longer who you are. Christ died so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you. Not just for you, but in you. So that the new covenant promises of God might be lived out in your life and expressed through love. That's who you are, Christ. So, we see that freedom from the bondage of sin is the blessing of sanctification. Now, fourth, this is the fourth thing I want us to see. God accomplishes our sanctification through the work of His Spirit. God accomplishes the work of our salvation through the work of His Spirit. So, look there in verse 2, and then also in verse 4, which both speak of sanctification, and notice the role of the Spirit. Verse 2. 
For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, in Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, Paul gives special attention and focus to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, this is really in contrast to the discussion that Paul has had in Romans chapter 7 regarding the law. So, in Romans chapter 7, the law is referenced approximately 20 times. But in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned by name 19 times in just the first 20 verses of Romans chapter 8. So what we have here in Romans 7 and 8 is a contrast between the weakness of the law, the impotency of the law, and the power of the Spirit. And so this is what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. And notice how Paul initially refers to the Holy Spirit in verse 2. He refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of life. Now, this reminds us of a number of things. It reminds us of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible opens up and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. So it is the Spirit of life, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life that is present when God created the world and gave life to the world and brought all things into existence out of nothing. And this reminds us even of a passage we looked at last week, Romans chapter 4, verse 17, in which Paul tells us that Abraham believed in God, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now my friends, understand, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to give life, spiritual life, to our dead souls. And to create within us desires to please God, to obey God, when those desires beforehand did not exist. This is the work of the Spirit. Listen to the words of John Owen, Christian theologian, in speaking about the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, quote, Every time we simply believe in the Holy Spirit, we mean we believe there is a living God able and willing to enter human personality and change it into prayer. Listen to John Stott, a Christian pastor, what he has to say about the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Quote, Thus the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible, end of quote. Now, unfortunately, sometimes Christians assume that the primary role in the, of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to grant us some type of emotional experience of God or to perform some miraculous feat that would assure us of the presence of God. But what is often missed is the work of the Holy Spirit in giving us new life in Jesus and empowering us to walk in obedience to all that Jesus taught and commanded us. Remember, what is the promise of the new covenant? 
In Ezekiel 37, 26, and I will put my spirit within you. And why? Why, Lord, would you put your spirit within us and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules? This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is what Paul is declaring in Romans chapter 8. And so, yes, in one sense, it is right that our emotions should be properly directed towards God. But listen, my friends, oftentimes a better measure of the work and activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not whether or not we are emotionally moved when we hear our favorite Christian song sung, but whether or not, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are increasingly walking in obedience to God and to His commands. Christ said, Paul says here, that Christ died so that we might know that transforming work of the Spirit of life in us. So we've considered the blessing of justification and the work of the Son accomplishing justification. We consider the blessing of sanctification and the work of the Spirit in sanctification. Now fifth, I want us to consider this. God is the cause of both our justification and our sanctification. God is the cause of both our justification and our sanctification. So this should be pretty apparent. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. This should be pretty apparent given what we've already said. Uh, I want to Pointed out to you to make it explicit. Look there in chapter 8, verse 3. We read, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So remember that the point of chapter 7 is the weakness of the law, the impotency of the law. The law cannot save us, the law cannot sanctify us. And we remember from Romans chapter 7 that the issue, the problem is not so much the law, the problem is us, right? We are sinners. That's the problem. I mean, if we could, the law tells us what to do. If we could obey the law, then the law could save us. And we would be sanctified. But because we are sinners, we are unable to obey the law. And therefore, the law is unable to save us and unable to sanctify us. But now Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, that God will do and has done what the law cannot do. The law cannot save us. The law cannot make us holy. So God has done what the law cannot do in justifying us and by in the process of sanctifying us. Now notice this, that the work, this is, this work of justification, this work of ongoing sanctification is the work of the triune God of life. You see it there in verse 3. For God, as a reference to God the Father, has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son, there's God the Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, there's called the Holy Spirit. So this is, this work of redemption, justification and sanctification, is the work of the triune God of the Bible. And here's, here's how it plays itself out. The law cannot save us, so God the Father has saved us through His Son. And the law cannot sanctify us, so God the Father 
is sanctifying us by His Holy Spirit. The work of justification and sanctification is the work of the triune God of Now, sixth, justification and sanctification are distinct and necessary works of salvation. I said that kind of fast, let me slow down. Justification and sanctification, so we're considering them both now in their relationship to one another. Justification and sanctification are distinct and necessary works of salvation. But there in verse 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus as justification. For the law of the Spirit of life is set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, that's sanctification. Now, what is the relationship between verse 1 and verse 2? You see that they're connected there by that word for, or it could be translated because. Now, we use the word for and because in different ways. I think John Piper has a really helpful illustration to make this point. He, he, he provides this illustration. We can say on the one hand, I am really hungry because my stomach is brownish. Okay. I'm really hungry because my stomach is brown. And we can say, I'm really hungry because I didn't eat any breakfast. Now, because in both of those sentences is being used differently. In the first case, I'm hungry because my stomach is growling. Growling is the evidence of my hunger. In the second case, I'm really hungry because I didn't eat any breakfast. Eating is not the evidence of my hunger. It is the cause of my hunger. So we can use because either to indicate evidence, growling, it's evidence that I'm hungry, or cause I didn't eat breakfast. That's the cause of my hunger. Now in chapter 8, verse 2, how is Paul using the word for or because here? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for or because the law of the Spirit of life is setting free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And I believe that Paul here, based on everything Paul has said from Romans and other letters that he's written, the testimony of the New Testament, Paul is using the word for or because here, not as cause. So our sanctification is not the cause of our justification, but rather he's using it as evidence. Our sanctification is the evidence of our justification. In other words, what Paul is saying is these are the kinds of people who have been justified in Christ Jesus. These are the kind of people for whom there is no condemnation. It is those who, by the law of the Spirit, have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul says the same thing in verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law we did by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. And why did he do that? Why did he justify us? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So walking according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit is not the cause of our justification, but rather it is the evidence of our justification. Now, this is important for us to point out 
Because we need to understand, and, and I'll hopefully show you how this is practical, we need to understand the relationship in our salvation between justification and sanctification. The way I would say it here is that they are distinct works, and they are both necessary works. So first, they're distinct. What I mean by that is justification is not sanctification. And sanctification is not justification. One precedes the other and is the necessary condition to the other. So justification precedes progressive sanctification and is the necessary condition for sanctification. You see, some might claim that sanctification precedes justification. Some would do that with the theological language, kind of like abused here, or others might just kind of fall into this thinking. Some might say, I must grow in righteousness before I am justified. I must grow in righteousness before God will accept me. And I will be justified on the basis of how much progress I make in sanctification. This is similar to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And it is wrong. It is a false gospel. Justification precedes sanctification and is the necessary condition for sanctification. And what this means practically in our lives is that as we pursue justification, as we pursue sanctification, as we pursue growing more and more into the image of Christ, we don't do so with a fearful anxiety that we might not hit the mark if we will be forever condemned. Rather, our progress in sanctification is carried along by a humble confidence that we will never be condemned because our standing before God is not based on our behavior or our progress, but rather on the fact that we find ourselves by faith in Christ, who is our Redeemer. So these two works are distinct from one another. On the other hand, some might assume that justification is necessary, is a necessary work of salvation, but sanctification is optional. It's an add-on. Now, where do we find this kind of idea? We find this kind of idea very prevalent in the cultural Christianity of the South, right? So here's the idea. Yeah, I'm trusted in Jesus. I'm justified. God's forgiven me of my sins. He's accepted me. But sanctification? Not so interested in that. That's kind of an optional add-on, right? That's just for really spiritual Christians. This also, my friends, is a grave misunderstanding of the gospel. Do you see what Paul is saying here in our text? Justification and sanctification always go together. They are not the same, they're not to be completed, but one cannot be justified and then opt out of sanctification. Those who are justified will be sanctified. In fact, sanctification is evidence that we have been justified. The good news of the gospel is that both of these blessings are ours by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Both freedom from the condemnation of sin and freedom from the bondage of sin. 
I think at one point I might have said, I've got good news for you. I think at one point I might have said there were eight points of truth, eight truths or applications. There's actually seven. Okay. <laughs> and that's the perfect number, so. Okay. Seven. And this is very brief. The blessings of justification and sanctification characterize the Christian life. The blessings of justification and sanctification characterize the Christian life. Now, the point I want to make here is that in Romans 6, so if we just step back and look at Romans 6 and 7 and 8, in Romans 6, you'll remember that Paul is speaking about our union with Christ. He's glorying in the victory that we have in Christ. Then we come into Romans 7, and Paul reveals his ongoing experience and struggle with sin. And now, what we see is that Paul concludes Romans chapter 7 with these words. These are his final words in Romans chapter 7. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So it seems that chapter 7 ends both of the, a note of victory, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and a note of conflict and struggle. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so we might wonder, like, how should we think about the Christian life? Is, is the Christian life a life of victory? Or will the Christian life predominantly be marked by a life of struggle and conflict? Is the Christian life a perpetual, a life of perpetual guilt and moral defeat? What should we expect the general tenor or the prevailing theme of the Christian life to be? And it seems to me that it's as though coming out of Romans chapter 7, Paul now says, it's kind of like a, a summary, a conclusion. Therefore, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's as though all that Paul has said about the Christian life in his letter to the Romans up to this point, in particular, all that he has said about the Christian life in Romans 6 and 7, Paul says, this is the banner that I want to place over all of it. This is the banner over everything I've said about the Christian life up to this point. No condemnation and freedom from the bondage of sin. Now, my friends, that doesn't mean that the Christian life will be absent of trials and difficulties or hardships and pains or sorrows or griefs far from it. But it does mean that in the midst of all of that and more, the banner of God's grace over our lives reads freedom from the condemnation of sin and freedom from the bondage of sin. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you and praise you for the great promises that you have given us in your word. And we thank you for this glorious gospel word that has both delivered us from the condemnation of sin and the bondage of sin. Lord, thank you now for the opportunity that we have to celebrate baptism as we continue to rejoice in your grace and mercy. And even the act of baptism are reminded again of our union with Christ, that we have died with Him, that we have been raised with Him, that we have new life in Him. Lord, take your word now and apply it to our hearts and Lord, fill our hearts with joy and thanksgiving as we celebrate the baptism of Judson Williams. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we